Welcome to the Governance Podcast at the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is Irina Schneider and I'm the Assistant Director of the Centre. Joining me today is my colleague, Dr. Sarah Wilford. Sarah received her PhD in politics from King's College London in 2018 and is soon starting as an assistant professor at the University of the Andes in Santiago. Her doctoral research was on the political thought of Alexis de Tocqueville regarding family, women, and democratic conditions. She's also worked on the relationship between religion and liberty in Tocqueville, womanhood during the 19th century, and the use of Tocqueville in later 20th and 21st century political theory and political science. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Tocqueville is a very popular writer to turn to nowadays, uh, particularly when we think about modern questions of the loss of associationalism, um, virtuous citizenship, community values. But we don't often think about Tocqueville in terms of uh, gender and the domestic sphere. That's obviously where you have been working. And I wanted to ask, just to get started, how did you get interested in the gender angle on Tocqueville? So I got interested in the gender angle, the domestic sphere, themes around family in a slightly uh, mundane way, which is I observed a problem in the scholarship. So initially, the passion for Tocqueville was just sort of separate from this particular angle. I read Democracy in America a long time ago, and I fell in love with it, and I was blown away. And then quite separately, just in terms of history, I'd always been interested in um, history of women, women's history, gender themes. And I thought, well, I have that interest, so maybe I'll take a closer look at this family and womanhood sections in in democracy in America. And uh, in taking that closer look, I realized that there was kind of this gap in the literature around Tocqueville on gender and family. Then there's not a lot of literature. Like you mm. said, it's not it's not usually what we talk about in a, in relation to Tocqueville. And uh, what I found was a very conservative perspective on gender and family in Tocqueville and a, and a sort of feminist reading um, on gender and family in Tocqueville. And I thought both sort of missed the mark. And I wanted to delve a little bit deeper into, into getting that interpretation right. And then once I started delving into it, I realized how particularly unique um, family and womanhood were in Tocqueville's overall perspective on democracy. And they were these sort of peculiar enter- entities that seemed robust in the face of everything else he was observing about democracy. And that reinforced my my feeling and my intuition that it might be a particularly good lens, a particularly good way into understanding Tocqueville. Mm. And um, that's how I got interested in it. So to delve into the details, what exactly is the role of womanhood and the domestic sphere in Tocqueville's work? So my main research is on Tocqueville's associationalism, which is uh, what we usually associate Tocqueville with, um, and the domestic sphere, which I sort of understand as comprised of a way of thinking about family and a way of thinking about womanhood. And the structure of that project, sort of in the big picture, starts with Tocqueville's profound concern for liberty being at risk in a democracy. But he also thought that liberty within democracy could be secured by social norms and morals, cultural habits, 
And the importance of social mores is very much well established in the existing scholarship on Tocqueville. Um, but the role of the domestic sphere was where I come in and argue that the domestic sphere was actually a central component of Tocqueville's democratic theory. And um, the way that I do that is saying that within Tocqueville's associationalism, womanhood and family life, family, family life <laughs> were actually normative models that he constructed and had a primary significance because they generated these social mores that are exercised across all these different facets of mm. his picture of associate, associative life. And they do this in two ways. First, the domestic sphere is sort of a feeder. It's the most initial, the most proximate, um, the most natural school for s- small citizens. Um, and that's a very sort of... Um, chronological way in which it feeds associative life. But the second way it feeds associative life is that the domestic sphere is a very peculiar, genuinely bizarre place in democratic society by Tocqueville's own sort of account where authority still exists. So one of the things he observes in general about democratic society is a breakdown in, in, in authority in, in, you know, with the breakdown of hierarchy has this breakdown of who are you to tell me what to do? The thing about a family is it preserves what he calls natural authority. Mm -hmm. So just the natural authority a parent would have over their child. So the domestic sphere, the home establishes that unique habit of respecting authority, which is actually necessary to the perpetuation of social norms in other uh, domains. So I argue that when we look at the domestic sphere, we can find a way into understanding how nature, authority, and virtue exist within his wider democratic theory. And um, what I examine is that for Tocqueville, sex differences, preserving different gender roles, and preserving paternal authority, the father's authority over his children, resists this total democratization of family life. So by saying sex difference matters and paternal authority matters, He's, he's saying something in the face of this complete flattening and, and equalizing of individuals in a family so that they're not just a group of equal people hanging out in a home. And, and that's important because that authority safeguards the moral work that's, that's happening in the home, the moral inculcation, and therefore ultimately benefiting the preservation of liberty. Um, and then I just, I guess my case is we, we often think about civil associations, religion, decentralization, clubs. You know, you could go in this long list of these mediating institutions. My, my case was really to try and say the domestic sphere belongs on that list. It might even be the most important one on the list. So that's an overview mm-hmm. of, the, of, the, of my project. You said a lot of really interesting things there, and I, I want to ask you a lot of questions right now. Um, I guess the first one is, my first reaction is, you talked about paternal authority and that being a prime sort of element in democratic citizenship and, and being the first school of citizenship. Uh, what about the role of the mother and maternal authority and womanhood in general? How does that contribute to the raising of virtuous democratic citizens? That's a good question because I think in terms of authority, Tocqueville speaks more about about paternal authority. And then he talks about an authority between husband and wife with an I'm surprising authority of, of the male 
uh, over the over the female. Um, but he does carve out this vision of womanhood um, that sets her in not necessarily, and she is in a person with authority, but she is a person of unique moral character. It's a, it's very much an starts to look like an ideal mm-hmm. that is forged in the in the freedom of a democratic youth and then in her maturity becomes this extraordinarily self-sacrificing figure. And I think it's through that uh, ideal or normative model of woman as self-sacrificing figure that she imparts uh, the kind of lesson of being an other regarding citizen of being concerned for others in terms of neighborliness and and the other kind of civic responsibilities that we we associate with Tocqueville. So she's very unique. I've said the family and the domestic sphere are incredibly unique in the whole picture of of everything else he's diagnosing about democracy, but the woman, Tocqueville's woman is very unique because she's peculiar peculiarly self-sacrificing it is it's so unusual with his diagnosis about what democracy does Mm -hmm. to the human spirit everywhere else Mm -hmm. in his thought that this person can be so self-sacrificing so i think it's it's through that that she is Mm -hmm. most instructive to delve further into the question of authority both maternal paternal in the domestic sphere it seems almost like an oxymoron to say that respect for authority leads to more democratic norms in civil society. How does that sort of, how does that transition play out in Tocqueville? So I understand how it's counterintuitive to say habits of ceding ground to authority don't seem like democratic habits. I I understand how that almost seems like a contradiction. But in order to do anything in this world, we have to learn how to operate within the social norms. And we can only learn those things if we give some ground to authority. Um, so what I'm trying to say in the family is this peculiar avenue to accepting authority is it's just a, it's a training ground that comes naturally. It's very natural to do what your parents tell you to do. Um, that allows us to then enter the public sphere and be at the town council and naturally understand that the people who have been on the town council probably know how to do things and then we we follow their patterns and habits and pick up on the social norms. So it's something it's it's something a little bit more gentle than than maybe what we're put in mind of um, when we think of giving too much ground to authority. Mm-hmm. And the reason that it relates to freedom is these social norms in a, in the low in a in localized sense in the intimate relations are within Tocqueville system what ultimately keeps at bay um, the threat of a more pernicious tyranny and authority and what he calls democratic despotism but I can I can talk about that a bit more mm-hmm. when I if, if we'd want to talk about Tocqueville's mm-hmm. associationalism in a more general sense well, precisely, I think that's a really good transition into that because Tocqueville really is seen as a scholar of civil society, of uh, associationalism. We throw around these terms, but we are not often very clear about what Tocqueville meant by them. And when he observed that in American society, what was he talking about? What does governance and associationalism mean for Tocqueville in this sense? Okay, so one way we could ask it is, is Tocqueville a theor- theorist of self-governance? 
Um, and I think, I think we can think of Tocqueville as a theorist of self-governance, even though maybe he didn't. Um, I think uh, I often just think of Tocqueville as more of a, a moral philosopher. How do we remain moral and virtuous mm-hmm. in democratic society? But if we understand Tocqueville's associationalism as the guard against potential democratic despotism, then his associationalism is both the thing that allows us to govern ourselves and it is also it also is self-governance. So self-governance both maintains our freedom and just is the structure of, of mm-hmm. governing ourselves. So to be a bit more detailed, in, demo- in democratic society, according to Tocqueville, um, there are two components, uh, equality and liberty. And in an equal society where we don't have hierarchy, democratic people lack pre-prescribed social roles, social class, and an economic destiny. Equal citizens are free citizens because being equal allows us to have more choice. So um, in a way, equality is a prerequisite. It's a, it's a necessary but not sufficient condition of liberty. So e- equality is necessary for us to be free, but in order to maintain freedom, we're going to need some other things as well. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where Tocqueville's associationalism comes in. He talks a lot about democratic despotism, which is this unusual form of tyranny special to democratic societies. And what it does is it can maintain the equality of citizens while devastating their liberty, hence despotism. Now, equality, as well as affording us liberty by taking away all of those hierarchies and arbitrary social status, equality also has some negative side effects, according to Tocqueville, like individualism, uniformity, mediocrity, social atomization, materialism, spiritual restlessness, even a taste for centralization. Um, And he calls all of those things sort of defects of democracy. All of those things can lead down the road to despotism. And Tocqueville saw liberty as related to this, the absence of that tyrannical power. And he defined liberty, understood liberty in contradiction to a mighty administrative centralized state enacting this despotism. The problem is the negative byproducts of equality that I just mentioned, individualism and the, and the like, um, make citizens all the more receptive to the promises of a large administrative state, what he calls a tutelary power. Like, it's not exactly a paternal power. It's just like your tutor, right? Um, it's not the father figure. It's this sort of gentle, gentle tutelary power um, and democracy within it. Uh, as much as it has the potential to make us free, has the potential to, uh, to, to be predisposed to this democratic despotism. So managing the problems of equality, the tendency to individualism, the tendency to uniformity, mediocrity, managing that mess, the defects, is essential to liberty. And that was a bit of a long-winded picture to get <laughs> me to say that is where associations come in. And that's where Tocqueville's associationalism comes in. And that is why we associate it with something to do with self-governance, something to do with contra the mighty administrative state. It's because it was his answer to those problems. So associative life 
for Tocqueville is a network of moderating forces that work with the best of democracy, things like self-governing independence of equal people making an effort in the world together and cooperating to oppose the very worst in democracy, which is things like individualism, homogeneity, moral mediocrity, and finally, the ultimate problem of despotism. So in Democracy in America, he talks about how he found in American society a lot of examples of this um, and what that sort of self-governing independence could look like. And he saw the social mores, the associations, the local institutions that were keeping Americans free. And these things are like everything from habits and ideas and beliefs, social attitudes, customs, values, to things like decentralization, associations, clubs, volunteerism, local schools, uh, free press, religion, churches. And as I've described earlier, I think the domestic sphere fits into that network as an originator in some sense, as I said earlier, um, in terms of establishing certain habits that can then be drawn upon across, across that whole network. So, so that's how I see associationalism working as a self-governing concept in, in Tocqueville's thought. A lot of times when it comes to Tocqueville and associationalism, we hear the term the habits of the heart and mind. So a lot of the, the networks that exist within civil society are driven by people's common acceptance or commitment to certain values or beliefs or ideas. And that is a kind of glue that ties society together and is generated within the, the domestic sphere. Can you talk a little bit more about what are the, ha the habits of the heart and mind that a self-governing citizenry uh, is supposed to have? That's a good question. I, I, one time I was asked, what is the what is the typical Tocquevillian association? And it was a really overwhelming question because uh, there isn't like a prototype <laughs> right. association. Yeah. Yeah. Prototype. Um, I, I wish I could sort of figure it out if that would be a, that'd be a good paper. But um, yeah. the thing is, we do, the part that's confusing is we do look at these associations the way that he talks about them. They seem so diverse. And so what is the, what is the underlying thing? And I, I'm glad you brought that, that question up because it's something that I don't think is talked about a lot and which I do try and talk about, which is behind all of this, maybe there is a unifying feature. And I think often we look at self-governance in Tocqueville and we want to say something like, oh, look, in the 19th century, even Tocqueville understood that local solutions provide efficient outcomes. And I want to say something like, I don't think that that was the point of his example. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I want to say something like, when we look at self-governance in Tocqueville, the point, the end of self-governance really has this morally compelling, this moral weight to it. We're talking about the thing that helps us not be selfish in the face of a society that entirely encourages us to be selfish. So, um, so the habits of the heart, I think, are some, if we had to say, well, what are these habits of the heart? I do think it is something to do with other regarding virtue. Um, of, of, Tocqueville has some language that I, I like to write about, end quote, uh, about dragging man else out of himself. And I, and I think it's the habit is being habituated to not being preoccupied with yourself. So um, it's, it isn't, 
he didn't say, and the habit of the heart that I am talking about is X, <laughs> right, Y, Z. Right. But, but I think from how he talks about association and associations in general, we can get to um, a, a conclusion of other regarding virtue. That's quite a unified habit that can be exercised across all of these different avenues of association. Um, but I think a lot of people often sort of categorize and and think about Tocqueville's associations in quite separate groups, almost a topology rather than a, a kind of unified project. And I think it is helpful to ask that question, um, as you did, and, and make the observation that maybe in all of these things, from participating in a church to local governance to volunteerism, there's this underlying other directedness, other regarding habit that's being formed um, that is good for people. And it has that, that general, there's a more general spirit to it than um, simply these, these sort of network of band-aids keep stemming <laughs> the flow of despotism from all different right. angles. Yeah. The, the primary thing might just actually be a habit of the heart that is other regarding. Mm-hmm. Tocqueville has been used and appropriated by many modern scholars in social science, uh, from thinkers like Robert Putnam to Vincent Ostrom and others, and they often use Tocqueville to address modern issues of democracy, modern crises of democracy. Um, You've certainly worked a little bit about how they interpreted Tocqueville. What did they get right and what did they get wrong? Okay. Great question. Thank you. Um, so I think there is, like you said, like a lot of Tocqueville around. Um, if you're a strange person like me who has Google alerts for Tocqueville, you'll see that every every week there's a comment opin- or an opinion article that starts with, in the 19th century, Tocqueville said, you know, he's he's often, often quoted. So I, I have zeroed in on sort of three areas that I like to look at where Tocqueville is cropping up for in more modern conversations. And that is, like you mentioned, Robert Putnam. So the social capital area, the polycentricity area, and the communitarianism area. And I think very loosely, Putnam can kind of represent these social capital folks. The Ostroms represent polycentricity, and uh, Nisbet can represent um, communitarians. Although it's a bit earlier, but Mm -hmm. he's sort of the main Mm -hmm. guy in the communitarians. So all three of those groups focus on associations in some way. And I think they all have a claim to the Tocquevillian legacy, both through just the things that they're talking about, but also, and I, I use this word way too much, but they also self-consciously, um, self-consciously have this Tocquevillian association, which is they're, they're actually quoting Tocqueville or something like that. And they were all motivated, like like you mentioned, by this kind of, something's wrong, something's amiss in in American society, and we have a problem. So for the social capital folks and Putnam, the problem is civil disengagement Mm -hmm. um, and weakened social ties. For the Ostroms and people who are interested in studying polycentricity, the problem feels like it's originating from a tension between um, local nodes of social organization and a large centralized power and localism is somehow crowded out or going extinct and that's bad because it's because localism can be so efficient um and then i think the communitarians and people like nisbet there's this moral tension 
for them between mass society, so things like the large modern democratic state, complex market economy, massive political parties, so a tension between mass society and private life like family, church, local neighborhood. And for them, this means that these more intimate networks aren't providing for things like welfare and mutual aid um, the way perhaps they once did. So that's similar to um, the polycentricity folks in terms of being worried about this crowded out problem. But I think the communitarians are also worried more um, more clearly and more, more openly worried about moral life being put at risk. The, all three of those groups have a similar answer to this problem, which is associations. Um, and, uh, and that's how they appear Tocquevillian. So for Putnam, who I would call maybe the least Tocquevillian of the bunch, um, though one of his reviewers of Bowling Alone which is 2000 or 2001, one of his reviewers called him the Tocqueville of our generation, <laughs> which I'm raising my eyebrows as a podcast, <laughs> but I will let you know I'm raising my eyebrows. I'm not sure about that. But Putnam's project, basically, that important project, recorded the way in which Americans were just dropping out of civic civic responsibilities uh, and sort of public life in general. Everything from friendship and socializing to church attendance to volunteering to, you know, just being a part of a club um, and local council. So just he, he documented that decline and and uh, really worried about it and wanted to get the conversation started for regenerating associative life. Second, the Ostroms and polycentricity, they, they I'd say more self-consciously than, than Putnam, uh, understood themselves as Tocquevillian. Vincent Ostrom said of himself, I'm trying to work to resolve Tocqueville's puzzle. And Eleanor Ostrom um, said that Tocqueville informed the questions of their workshop. Um, and I, I know as scholars that they're quite different, but here, I, here I've just sort of grouped them. Um, the other thing about the Ostroms and the theme of polycentricity is people who operate in the Ostroms legacy or in, in their spirit very much write about them and use the word Tocquevillian to describe them. It's, it's, it's a sort of consistent theme in later literature and polycentricity that the Ostroms Tocquevillian project. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, as I described, they were very concerned with these, uh, these hybrid and multi um, multi-jurisdictional sort of answers to governance problems um, and uh, that that tension between um, how how local answers and local solutions could be crowded out potentially. Um, Vincent Ostrom does talk about family a bit, but it doesn't end up becoming a kind of defining feature of their work. Uh, it's not something we usually associate with them in the way that we do with communitarians. So communitarians are what I would say maybe the most Tocquevillian of these three that I'm describing. Um, they have particular attention to family in a very obvious way, uh, religion and immediate neighborhood, what they call the smaller associations. And they talk about how these areas are the ones that can really refine character. And I think there's more attention to those Tocqueville themes that I raised earlier in our conversation, like family and authority in the communitarians. So 
those those are the three main examples I like to talk about in terms of the the sort of appropriation of Tocqueville. And what all of these people will do is use Tocqueville quotes, um, use make references to Tocqueville, um, or be described as Tocquevillian mm-hmm. by outside commentators. What is your contribution about these perspectives? Are they hitting the point? Are they being accurately Tocquevillian, or are they actually misunderstanding parts of his argument? Thanks for that question, yes, because I think the, my my contribution, or what's the point of bringing this up and noticing that some, some scholars like to quote Tocqueville, I think that there is a critique to be made about their use of Tocqueville. Um, and this especially relates to what we we're talking about at the beginning of the podcast about the domestic sphere. I think the things that the all three of these groups maybe miss is it are inevitably related to the domestic sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all inextricably linked to the domestic sphere. So things like family and gender roles, authority, love of locality, loyalty to locality virtuous habits and that unified habit that we were talking about earlier, all of those are things that we learn about when we look at the domestic sphere. And I think they're all areas where these fields of scholarship have not gotten anything wrong in particular, but just kind of missed something. Um, So for example, with family and gender roles, Robert Putnam in particular, uh, how do I describe this? I, he, it's almost as if he's very worried to put any blame for the decline of um, uh, of social capital at the feet of a changing family dynamic and uh, changing gender roles. He's, he actually uses words like exculpate and like provide an alibi for to tr- to literally get women off the hook for any kind of. Um, any kind of responsibility for the decline of social capital. At the same time, he talks about how women are measurably more avid social capitalists. That's what he says. So I have to say there's something like the picture doesn't quite add up. And he has been criticized by that in by reviewers who, um, uh, I, I can't think of the name of the reviewer right now, but who particularly drew attention to maybe this is just, oh, Talbot, I think, um, maybe it was just unfashionable for him to point this out. And I think that that's a huge oversight. And if you really were going in with a, if you'd really read your Tocqueville, you'd really have this um, perspective that gender roles might be a big component in the formation of, of social capital. And you wouldn't put that aside um, so readily. So I think there are some issues like that in, in Putnam's work. Um, Another critique would be about, about the role of familial authority in terms of the transmission that we talked about earlier. I think Putnam, again, kind of misses the mark a little bit in terms of of that intergenerational perspective. Um, And I I also think that the communitarians and the polycentricity scholars, uh, their, their intention on this issue of authority as well um, because I think the communitarians accept a degree of familial authority that perhaps coercively, because children are children, um, in families, people are initiated into caring responsibilities. And the communitarians talk a lot about caregiving roles. 
in a way that maybe a more liberal perspective, the polycentricity perspective, might not really be able to use this language of rights to just articulate and describe what looks like a, a very authoritative relationship intergenerationally. Um, so I think that there's there's a little bit of difficulty there. More significantly, I think from my Tocqueville police perspective, the polycentricity folks run into a problem in terms of rooted love of locality. So for Tocqueville, you know, he he understood loyalty and the best formation of social norms as what he called in areas that were, quote, long and settled, um, long, old and long settled. So there has to be these layers and a little bit more of a historic uh, loyalty in the formation of a culture that really has strong social norms. Now, the people studying polycentricity want to advocate for these strong social norms that can govern us um, locally. Um, but the problem is because the polycentricity has also this multi-jurisdictional element, sometimes there's this emphasis on competition and exit, voting with your feet, that's inappropriate and incongruous with what's necessary, loyalty, to the formation of strong norms that can actually govern us and have any control over our lives. Um, and I think that, you know, because the polycentricity folks are so self-consciously <laughs> operating in the Tocquevillian spirit, they are quoting Tocqueville, they are calling themselves Tocquevillian, it's really worth highlighting that Tocqueville did not indicate that the real value of associations or localism was in a competitive diversity. That, that wasn't the real value to him, but there's such a spirit of that competitive diversity, that institutional diversity um, in, in the polycentricity scholarship. So I think it's important to just point out that little bit of Tocqueville that might have been missed because they are they're very much operating this Tocquevillian legacy while kind of missing like actually loyalty is important. So there are some, you know there's there's work that's that talks about the tension between loyalty and exiting and voting with your feet. And I think that's it's another part of my critique. And then I think issues around virtue and transferable skills that that transferable habit of the heart that you brought up mm -hmm. earlier. I think that that is really missed out in a lot of social capital literature. Um, the idea of moral grandeur, this like big, meaningful, virtuous pursuit is really just not in the conversation when we talk about the values and the virtues that social capital scholars want to talk about. Those are trustworthiness, cooperativeness, accountability. Um, and those are all things that maybe relate to other regarding virtue, but they're not, they're, they're not quite uh, in the same moral vein as, as Tocqueville. And they also, the other thing is, uh, I think social, in particular people who study social capital, because that, there's that tendency to differentiate different types of social capital, you've heard of bridging and bonding, you've mm -hmm. got social capital that's religious, you've got these different kinds of, of social capital and it's measured in different ways and it's studied in different ways. And I think that there's a risk when we slice and dice it and dissect it and measure it, social capital scholars don't know how to put it back together again. Um, I mean, Putnam definitely... I don't think did. I mean, there's, he, de he gets very close to describing something like a, like a unified sense of a, a habit that's transferable across different 
um, spheres when he talks about religion, because he talks about how religious people are correlated to be more uh, volunteering, you know, in, in non-religious activities. But then he just doesn't go anywhere with it. So I think that's another risk. That's another part of my critique is you're kind of missing this, this unity of habit that Tocqueville offered us as food for thought. And, um, and I think, I guess my critique is my exasperation sometimes with the, the appropriation of Tocqueville really comes down to wanting to say something like the democratic, I've said this before and I'll say it until I'm dead, but the, the, uh, democratic citizen is free and flourishing, not because she, uh, can go to her local association rather than the centralized state authority to have a uh, pothole fixed. And the reason I use the pothole example is, um, Modern social scientists often like to refer to Tocqueville's example of an obstruction in the road and how people come together and have this volunteeristic spirit to fix the obstruction. They don't need to go to Washington to fix the obstruction. And, you know, people really like that anecdote. But the point of that anecdote is not that, you know, I'm not a free citizen because I can go and solve my pothole locally rather than have this, the centralized state do it. And the democratic citizen is not more free because she can move down the road to a different county that's better at fixing potholes. It's it's because she has this other directed spirit that allows her to not be atomized, alone, solitary, and is is part of something bigger. And that's how how people maintain that freedom. And I just uh, I think that missing these facets of Tocqueville. Um, means that there might be more to these projects than have so far been investigated. I think part of the difficulty in transmitting this more 19th century perspective into the 21st century is that our society doesn't really look very much the same as when Tocqueville observed it. So you talked a lot about the virtues of the self-governing society in which women take a disproportionate role in bringing up children and and transmitting the virtues of citizenship, um, where religion is a very big aspect in people's lives that does play a constraining role uh, in morality, where there is a tendency to respect authority more, where information is not so democratized, where authority is not so democratized. We live in a completely different world now. And you might say that certainly women's empowerment is a completely positive achievement in light of history and that women shouldn't necessarily be spending the majority of their time in the domestic sphere transmitting these moral virtues to citizens. So there are a lot of tensions in, uh, I guess, taking the Tocquevillian example and being perfectly Tocquevillian in the 21st century. Should we be Tocquevillian nowadays, uh, given that society has completely changed? Great point. Um, I mean, yeah, uh, as you as you started describing, you know, we now live in a different society. I'm like, yeah, I know. What a nightmare. But no, of course, of course not. Um, and obviously, I mean, simple things like us having this conversation now is, is uh, one of the, the great things about living in a modern society um, that uh, I think my critique, I, first of all, I want to say, I think my critique of, oh, Putnam doesn't look at these gender roles thing. It's not. It's not to say 
he and the polycentricity folks and the communitarians really, if they were doing Tocqueville probably, they'd tell women to all get back in the domestic sphere. Not at all. I just think in terms of a historical sort of evaluation of trends, Putnam just wasn't looking at something that is true. <laughs> um, that I, I haven't looked at all of the data, but my instinct, and also I think if he if he had been more truly Tocquevillian in perspective, maybe would have had access to this insight in a different way. But I really don't want to um, have this critique be like, I'm the Tocqueville police, you're under arrest. Uh, <laughs> we're going to the court of history of political thought. Um, <laughs> not at all. The it, it, is, it is absolutely not to police the use of Tocqueville as a historical mascot in modern social science. It is just to say that new ideas could be offered um, by by highlighting what Tocqueville has to offer. So particularly with what you said about changing social norms, about the way that domestic work is uh, divided and women being part of the workforce, I think my critique basically provokes questions like, you know, how can we make that trade-off from an older form of associative life between women's participation in the public sphere. What is that trade-off? And I, and I just want to provoke that question a bit more, not necessarily advocate for, with the Tocqueville, full force of the Tocqueville police that women need to, to move back into the private sphere or anything like that, but just ask wh- what, what trade-offs are we making, you know, in terms of loyalty um, in the face of social atomization and very permissive exit options um, can we really have associations and local life that's really robust if it lacks loyalty? You know, just just probing those questions and and saying how do we get around those problems? So, I certainly don't want to wholesale transport Tocqueville's advice and plant it on the 21st century. And you're right that we're sort of working things out in our the thing that is most indicative of how much we're still working out these these social norms is the fact that women are largely part of the workforce, but we see all these studies that women take on whatever it is, 75% of the domestic housework. And that just, that just shows maybe we haven't quite worked this all out. Um, Men still work more of what, what people call first shift hours, you know, but, Mm -hmm. and so maybe hours wise it does work out, but we, we don't really understand, um, how how all of that work is inside the home um, and outside the home and how it's going to form citizens. And so uh, I I think I've moved a little bit away from your question, which, (laughs) sorry, your question was about, is it appropriate to just transplant Tocqueville's advice? I don't think it is, but I do think the, the, the thing that is sort of always going to be applicable is that overarching structure, his overarching analysis of, of democracy and how it works and what it might encourage in the human soul. I, there's a lot of wisdom in that. And there, the, the themes that I raise by looking at the domestic sphere can provoke a lot of these questions. All of these three areas that I talked about are very concerned with private life. Um, and we need, if you're concerned with private life, it's worth looking at the home. Um, so I, I agree we can't transplant his his all of his advice, um, but it's worth um, 
it's worth a more thorough reading of him um, because he has helpful things to say and these accounts could be more fleshed out. Um, or, you know, future scholars working on in these areas can start to think about some of these things. And I just, I particularly when it comes to gender roles, I just don't think people should be so shy of, of uh, talking about that. There might be something really valuable. And it doesn't mean you're saying this is the way it should be. It's just examining how social capital is working in different groups and uh, different localities. Um, if it does certain kinds of social capital falls along gender lines, just don't be shy of saying that. That's interesting. Um, so I, uh, I I appreciate your question, and I don't want to seem um, that this this whole critique is a scolding of people's interest in Tocqueville. I'm glad that people are interested in Tocqueville because it gives a certain relevance to everything I'm interested in. That being said, I don't think the relevance of Tocqueville is solely defined by how much he's quoted in modern social science conversations. I think in and of his own right, we should all just be reading Democracy in America all the time. <laughs> Do you think that we're in a period of democratic despotism today? Um, okay, wow, that's a tough one. <laughs> so I, 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 I imagine to, the thing that... I do like to think about Tocqueville arriving in his time machine and what he would make of all of this. Um, and the thing I think that he might be most surprised by is actually the ways in which we are tyrannized by um, non-state actors like major technological uh, companies that we have outsourced our entire brains to. I think that's sort yeah. of the thing that would totally shock him. He's like, oh, but these are private companies. So I think... Um, <laughs> I wonder if we live in a form of despotism mm-hmm. with certain, I mean, you know, Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram are, you know, mm-hmm. all integrated and mm-hmm. they all surveil us. Mm-hmm. And the, that kind of tyranny is, mm-hmm. is alarming when you think about it too much. Um, and I wonder, I think that's an area where he might identify some despotism, um, but it would not be in terms of that mass centralized state that he was worried about. He probably would also be surprised by the size of, the French state and the mm-hmm. American state um, nowadays. Do we live in under a democratic despotism right now? I think that there are certain ways in which we do, because his fear was that certain parts of life would be taken out of the hands of the individual. And there are many aspects to everyday life that are taken out of the hands of the individual. And it's much more normal for it to be in the, in the public domain. Um, I also think in terms of his fears around individualism, social atomization, moral mediocrity, um, and uh, consumerism. I mean, we, we do have a lot of those things going on in modern society now. And, um, you know, when you think about he, his description of mediocrity is not just moral mediocrity, but it's mediocrity on every level. It's, it's, um, it's artistic mediocrity. It's, it's, it's a very, it's just a, nothing's too bad in democracy, but nothing's too great either. And I think he might observe that in, you know, our art, our TV and our entertainment and our, our poetry and our novels and, and this kind of art amount of education we have, you know, when was the last time you met someone who was like, you know, uh, these these incredible scholars that are you can work across like C.S. Lewis or someone like you can work across 50 different fields like knows nine languages we're all very very educated but we don't know a lot of folks like that mm-hmm. superstars um 
but we're, we have so much more education than previous generations. So in all of these different facets, I think he would observe um, a mediocrity. It sounds weird to use the mediocrity when we obviously live in an extremely luxurious age, but um, I think he would notice that things are neither real, really, really bad or these like heroic acts of the most great, fantastic minds and the most incredible art being made. Mm. Um, and uh, I do wonder, I, I, I think maybe you're right. Maybe we are, maybe we are living under some kind of despotism. In light of this potential that we are living in a period of democratic despotism, we are more secularized, we're more atomized, we're more lonely, we're lacking a lot of the social ties and the social mores that existed in the 19th century, especially in urban environments. We lack a lot of those central ingredients uh, for democratic citizenship that Tocqueville was talking about. So it seems like an opportune time to go back to literature and, and maybe ask, how do we replicate those mechanisms nowadays, given that we've lost a lot of it in the process and throughout history? Okay, that's good. We'll try and end on a more optimistic note. I feel like in your last question, things things got a bit grim. And I'm actually... I. And very pleased to live in the 21st century and in many ways think it is the greatest time to be alive. It is extraordinary that we have such a widening in the middle of access to so many quite good things, if not the most glorious. Um, I'd rather live in a quite good world than a world with a lot of uh, low, vile, evil, bad things going on um, or you know, poverty or other kinds of issues. But so I think is worth ending on a more optimistic note. I think Tocqueville, in a way, had an optimism uh, about what I like to think about is he he says we have to make the mores appropriate to our age. And so I think about that all the time when I'm despairing that maybe we live in bad times. Um, and because his advice so much has to do with maintenance, caring, preservation, um, in almost a cyclical, regenerative fashion, um, it's hard to see how his advice could be used when things are already pretty severely broken. Um, and, and I guess my answer is if we see that these things are broken, we really have a if we see that these things are broken and we think they're important, we really have a responsibility to try and rebuild them, to make them again. And I think especially friendship is a key component of this. Um, like you said, in a more secular world, in a, in a more um, you know, urban uh, environment in, in certain modern democracies, um, I think it begins with... Um, with rich friendships because it's the most accessible and there it is actually the most democratic friends are usually made of equals. Um, and to, to begin to form strong social ties. If, it, if it's just not a norm for rotary clubs to exist, like Americans love to talk about rotary clubs, but if they just don't really exist, you can't join one. Um, so the place to start is in building really strong friendships. And I think, uh, good conversations is part of that. And, um, you know, an, an, an ability to uh, be self-sacrificing for your friends is a start to building up um, 
to, to building up those social ties that are that are lacking. Um, but it is tricky to apply Tocqueville's advice because it really was about preservation. It was about ma- maintaining, not remaking or building from scratch. Um, something that I find interesting, this is taking us back to the grim perspective, but you know how there are so many like memes and jokes on the internet about hoping your friends will cancel plans and like friends cancel plan. And then you will be like some sort of joke thing. You tell, Oh, so sorry to miss you. But then the, you know, the picture in the meme is like delight that you can stay at home and like watch Netflix by <laughs> yes, yourself. Yes. And I'm not saying that those have never made me laugh because I don't relate to them, but I find it like this interesting phenomenon. That's like the most basic moving yourself out of the house to go be there for your friend when they need you in a time of need and like to connect with your friends. And, and, um, you know, so even, I guess my point is like, even on the friendship front, we might be, I'm going back to the grim stuff. Sorry, Irina. But I think, like, <laughs> I think even on the friendship front, we're, we're, we're so mm. comforted by Netflix and the delivery meal that, mm-hmm. you know, we, we might not even get out and be there with our friends and have a drink and have a good conversation or help them move or help them do something. Um, and I think that's, that's mm-hmm. really serious mm-hmm. because I think the most, the place we can really get to work at this is in mm-hmm. friendships. Um, and, mm-hmm you know, if we already have this kind of, a lot of creature comforts, that's, mm. that, oh, Tocqueville would be disappointed. I've, I took it back to the grim side of things, but I think he would be, uh, be cons- disappointed by memes like that. Um, but look, I think we, we have to just make the mores for our, appropriate to our age, um, uh, which is going to be women in the workplace. And how do we balance that work? And if we see that these social ties are lacking, just build them, you know, mm-hmm. just build them up, start making them happen. Well, on that more optimistic note, I think we'll end there. Thank Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us today. Thank you so much. To all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Governance Podcast. To learn more about our upcoming podcasts and events at the Center for the Study of Governance and Society, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. In the meantime, we look forward to seeing you again soon on the Governance Podcast.